Ephemeral is a production of iHeartRadio. As 8.15 approached, the audience filed into their seats and began to settle for the performance. Designed for chamber music, the Maverick Concert Hall was built in 1916 and is still in use today in Woodstock, New York, framed in by trees and set amongst the Catskill Mountains. The audience nearer the stage sat inside the barn-like building. The other half sat out on benches under the stars. As part of the 1952 summer series, this Friday night benefit concert featured works by a cavalcade of avant-garde composers, some just getting their start. It began with a piece by John Cage, which would later be titled Water Music, then 18-year-old Christian Wolff's Four Piano, Morton Feldman's Extensions No. 3, the premiere sonata in two parts by Pierre Boulez, five intermissions by Morton Feldman, for prepared piano by Christian Wolff, and before the night wrapped up with The Banshee by Henry Cowell. There was to be one more piece, a new piece, written by Cage and debuted tonight. Virtuoso performer David Tudor took the stage. Tudor sat down at the piano, placed the score in the stand, took out a stopwatch, and closed the lid over the keys. He started the stopwatch. 30 seconds later, he opened the lid, then closed it back over the keys. He did the same thing two minutes and 23 seconds later, turning the pages of the score all the while, performing each of the actions as quietly as possible. And a minute and 40 seconds after that, he stood as if to receive applause. In all, four minutes and 33 seconds had elapsed in which Tudor played no notes. 4.33, as the piece is most commonly referred. Four and a half minutes of inaction. You see, John Cage believed that music was everywhere. Including, and maybe even especially, silence. But what is silence? That summer night in upstate New York ended with an angry mob of a crowd. As David Tudor recounts, one patron exclaimed, Good people of Woodstock, I think we should run these people out of town. That was the reaction. <laughs> Audience members were incensed. They may have asked for their money back if it hadn't been a benefit concert. Cage would be accused of everything, from parading around in emperor's new clothes to a deliberate attack on the sanctity of music. And while these attitudes have persisted, they are now accompanied by a plethora of other readings. For the last 65 years, 433 has sparked debate, inspiration, and all levels of study. It's been performed, recorded, interpreted, parodied. Every textbook on modern American music has a blurb on John Cage and his so-called silent piece. I, like many students enrolled in Intro to Music Appreciation, covered 433 in class one day. For some reason, if I remember correctly, Dr. Dahl felt the need to cue up a YouTube video of an orchestral rendition of the piece. And then she instructed the class to stay silent. Just listen. This was one of those big classrooms with maybe a few hundred seats. You can imagine there was some snickering. But four and a half minutes is actually kind of a long time for the uninitiated. And by and by, the intentional sounds drifted away. After the orchestra and the video took a bow and the virtual audience gave rapturous applause, Dr. Dahl surveyed the class. What did you hear? Because, of course, the worst-kept secret of 433 is that it's not silent. The piece is ostensibly made up of the sounds in your environment. 
The cacophony we consciously or subconsciously tune out as we go about our business. The first performance, for instance, through Cage's ears, consisted of wind stirring in the trees, rain pattering the roof, and towards the end, people talking or walking out. Oh, my best one was, uh, I had students write down the sounds they heard during it, and one girl said, I never realized there was so much to listen to. This is Kyle Gann, who wrote the exhaustive history of 433, No Such Thing as Silence. Yeah, that's been my uh, best-selling book. It was, it's in a series of uh, American icons, and other things in the series are like the Empire State Building and the Hamburger and Gone with the Wind. So I had been fanatical about Cage when I was young. You know, I played 433 on my high school senior recital. And it seemed like a way of getting back to my roots. A few pages of blank sheet music may not seem like it took all that much concocting, but Cage said on numerous occasions that this was his hardest piece to write and that it took him the longest. Coincidentally, four and a half years. I think it was a big professional risk. He had a precarious reputation as a composer already, and it was the kind of thing that was going to make a lot of people not take him seriously. I think he did not want to do it until he had come up with a really serious rationale. In 1927, a 15-year-old high school student delivered his prize-winning speech on Pan-American relations from the stage of the Hollywood Bowl. One of the greatest blessings that the United States could receive in her near future would be to have her industries halted, her businesses discontinued, her people speechless, a great pause in her world of affairs created, and finally to have everything stop that runs until everyone should hear the last wheel go round and the last echo fade away. Then, in that moment of complete intermission, of undisturbed calm, then we should be capable of answering the question, what ought we to do? For we should be hushed and silent, and we should have the opportunity to learn that other people think. Born John Milton Cage Jr., he'd grown up mostly in California, the son of a journalist mother and a father who was an eccentric inventor. After high school, Cage enrolled in Pomona College to study theology, thinking he'd like to be a writer, but dropped out in his second year. He spent some years drifting through Europe and experimenting with writing, architecture, painting, and theater. But by 1933, he decided he would dedicate his life to composition. And he did. Cage bounced from coast to coast, studying with a litany of composers. But it all culminated in Los Angeles with Arnold Schoenberg. Schoenberg was a giant, an iconoclastic figurehead of the avant-garde. Before fleeing his native Germany in the wake of the Third Reich, he pioneered the 12-tone technique, in which the 12 semitones of the Western scale are ensured equal distribution. Effectively, the sacred European musical model had been turned on its head. Other composers had employed chromatic systems, but Schoenberg's became the gold standard for the 20th century. Cage, who lived almost exclusively in poverty into his 50s, could not afford the lessons. But Schoenberg, perhaps because of Cage's vigor and dedication, offered to tutor him for free a gesture Cage never forgot, tutoring many of his own pupils gratis throughout the years following. Cage looked up to Schoenberg immensely, but the teacher and student did not always see eye to eye. I certainly had no feeling for harmony. And Schoenberg thought that that uh, would make it impossible for me to write music. He said, you'll come to a wall. You won't be able to get through. And so I said, I, I'll beat my head against that wall. 
For a guy who'd flipped the script on tonal harmony, Schoenberg had a strict rubric for composition. I love what Cage says about writing 12-tone music because it exactly mirrored my experience, which is you run up and down that row matrix like a rat caught in a trap. You know, the, the next pitches are always spelled out for you. Struggling to support himself and his new wife, Xenia, Cage cycled through a variety of jobs up the West Coast. Some musical, some not. Perhaps internalizing Schoenberg's criticism, Cage avoided harmony and opted to work largely with unpitched percussion. But while chimes, xylophones, tom-toms, and cymbals were the norm, Cage arranged for his own ear and what he had available. Auto-brake drums, ratchets, tin cans, sheets of metal, and conch shells. The rhythmic thrust of his music and its unorthodox orchestration found a welcome pairing at the Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle. Modern Interpretive Dance and Merce Cunningham. John was open, wasn't so much learning as absorbing. As a dancer and choreographer, Merce Cunningham was a leading force in 20th century dance. He could take something which was unfamiliar and discern something about it that nobody else perhaps had even ever figured out. Cajun Cunningham collaborated endlessly on multimedia projects, developing their philosophies and artistries in tandem. The partnership would endure for the rest of Cage's life. In 1938, Cage was commissioned by dancer Sylvia Fort to accompany her new piece, Bacchanal. It would have been perfect to use percussion instruments accompanying her dance, but the theater in the Cornish School had no wings, and the, the house was very small, and there was just room for our grand piano. So the music had to be made on a piano. It couldn't be made with percussion instruments. And the time was short because she had asked me to write the piece on Tuesday and the performance was on Friday. So I thought what's wrong is not me because I'm working as conscientiously as I can. (laughs) The trouble is with the piano. So I decided to change it. Within these limitations, Cage, the consummate inventor, found a spark of inspiration. I went into the kitchen and got a pie plate and came back and put it on the strings. And I knew I was going in the right direction when I heard the sound. But it bounced. So I thought we'll have to put something that'll stay in position. And so I got a nail and it slipped. Then I got a a wood screw, and with the grooves, it it was just right. It stayed in position. And shortly, I had uh, such fascinating possibilities that I wrote the Bacchanal very quickly. Cage developed an instrument he would experiment with extensively in the next decade, and one of his many musical inventions that garnered curiosity in his career, the prepared piano. The basic idea is to augment the instrument's sonic range by placing objects between or along the strings. This was a complex process for Cage, and a continually evolving array of preparation techniques, notational methods, and compositions ensued. By the mid-40s, Cage was in some level of personal crisis. Perhaps because of his financial struggles, his lack of job security, or because his work was not being properly appreciated. I don't think you can really talk about it without also 
talking about the crisis he went through with his marriage. Uh, he came out as a gay man. He, he uh, left Xenia and, and started living with Merce Cunningham. And it was a deeply troubled time for him. The distress was evident. More and more, Cage channeled powerful, consuming emotions into his works for prepared piano. This came to a head with 1946's The Perilous Night. Cage poured his soul into the composition. But reviews were harsh. And looking back, Cage expressed his satisfaction with the piece, likening it to a Tower of Babel. Too many voices talking at once. If all the emotion he was putting in, all the self-expression he was channeling through his music was lost in translation, then what was the point? In 1946, Cage began tutoring, for free of course, Indian student Gita Sarabhai. He put the question to her, what is the function of music? To sober and quiet the mind, thus making one susceptible to divine influences. That was what her teacher had told her was the purpose of music. Therefore, it was the traditional purpose from ancient times. This idea became Cage's mantra. To quiet and sober the mind meant for him not to express emotions in his work, as he had done with The Perilous Night. Quite the opposite. Music should not feel like the composer's speaking at all. Cage looked for sources that supported his conclusion. Like 13th century theologian Meister Eckhart, A man should also be free from all things and actions, both inwardly and outwardly. Or Indian historian and philosopher Ananda K. Kumaraswamy. Our conception of art as essentially the expression of a personality, our whole view of genius, our impertinent curiosities about the artist's private life, all these things are the products of a perverted individualism and prevent our understanding of the nature of art. Or Hamlet. For there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Or Marcel Duchamp. The French-born painter and sculptor is undoubtedly associated with his 1917 work, Fountain, a mass-produced urinal, turned upside down, and submitted for gallery display. Duchamp's statement called the whole social contract of art into question. The advent of the ready-made brazenly decreed that art no longer needed to express the views of its creator. It didn't even need to be manufactured by his or her own hands. To Duchamp, the transmission of meaning through the visual aesthetic was nowhere near as important or interesting as the intellectual quandary it posed. Cage looked up to Duchamp tremendously. I'm very impressed by the idea of uh, Marcel Duchamp, that a work of art is not completed by the artist, but is completed by the listener. Hmm? or the observer, so that um, it can change from one person to another. As a decoy for his friendship, Cage worked up the courage to ask Duchamp, a chess master, to teach him the game. They played often for the next two decades, and even turned a 1968 game of chess into a live musical performance. Cage always lost. And then... There's Eric Satie. Though Cage never met Satie, who died in 1925, 
the older composer gave him considerable influence. In the 1960s, Cage arranged the first ever performance of Vexations, a single page of music with a note from the composer suggesting it be played 860 times in succession. The concert lasted over 18 hours. By some standards, Satie is thought of as the precursor to ambient music. Musique des Moublements, or furniture music, is how Satie described a series of short pieces he wrote in the 1910s and 20s. They could be rearranged, like furniture, as the performers saw fit, and repeated endlessly in an effort to blend into the sounds of the environment. A single performance was given during the composer's lifetime, staged during the intermissions of a play to fill the background, while people were getting up, going to the bathroom, maybe getting a drink. However, when the music began, the audience quieted down, took their seats, and politely directed their attention to the orchestra, despite Satie's reprobations, reportedly shouting, Go on talking! Walk about! Don't listen! Satie's experimentation with the fundamental structure of music seemed to be what informed Cage the most. Certainly, Satie offered the image of a much calmer, not-so-goal-directed music. It was easy for Cage to use Satie as proof of his arguments about the rhythmic structure of music being the important part, and that you could just outline a rhythmic structure and then fill it in, which is what Cage did a whole lot of in the 40s, and in a way you can say he spent the rest of his life outlining the rhythmic structure first and then just coming up with something to fill it. In 1948, Cage gave a lecture at Vassar College in which he pitched some new composition ideas. I have, for instance, several new desires. Two of them may seem absurd, but I am serious about them. First, to compose a piece of uninterrupted silence and sell it to the music company. It will be three or four and a half minutes long, these being the standard lengths of canned music, and its title will be Silent Prayer. The second idea he mentioned was composing for 12 radios. It came to fruition in 1951 as Imaginary Landscape Number 4. Silent Prayer is clearly the progenitor of 433. The title of the proposed piece, as Gann points out, owes an undeniable link to The Perennial Philosophy by Aldous Huxley, a study of religious theologies that Cage cited as one of his most influential reads. Chapter 15 is entitled Silent. Chapter 16, Prayer. The main difference between Silent Prayer and 433 is one of intention. In describing Silent Prayer, Cage seems less concerned with sobering and quieting the mind, but with opposition, perhaps even protest, to the Muzak Company. Muzak, those low-key, Instrumental arrangements, colloquially known as background or elevator music. By the 1940s, the company was spreading from city to city, hawking its catalogs of stimulus progression music. The conceit was that Muzak enhanced workplace productivity and made workers happier. 
Music is now being piped into banks, insurance companies, publishing houses, and other offices where brain workers find that it lessens tension and keeps everyone in a happier frame of mind. Factors that distract attention, change of tempo, loud brasses, vocals, are eliminated. Orchestras of strings and woodwinds predominate. The tones blending with the surroundings as do proper colors in a room. The worker should be no more aware of the music than of good lighting. The rhythms reaching him subconsciously create a feeling of well-being and eliminate strain. Of the thousands of venues Muzak infiltrated during the era, it met formal opposition in the nation's capital. A public program called Music As You Ride piped Muzak into D.C. buses under the auspices of improving everyone's commute. A group of opposed riders organized and sued the city, claiming that they had become a captive audience for corporate interests and that their First Amendment rights were being violated. The case reached the Supreme Court, where the judges ruled in favor of the city. But the backlash crystallized the way a lot of free thinkers felt about Muzak. Well, like most musicians, I think most of the words I use for Muzak would not be sayable on radio. <laughs> this is a podcast. Um, you can say whatever you want. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> well, it's awful stuff. I hate going to the grocery store and listening to these horrible arrangements of old 60s songs that I thought would die out decades ago. It's insidious. You know, I think Cage's generation was right to be horrified by Muzak. And it's a terrible thing for a composer, because you're trying to concentrate on your own music, and you've got ideas in your head, and this stuff is just blasting at you. The idea that Cage could write a silent piece the same length of time that Muzak was sold in, it was kind of a political gesture, a freedom from corporate control for a couple of minutes. That later turned into the Zen aspect of it we know now, but it, it, would, it started out as kind of a political protest. Cage's interest in Zen also began with Aldous Huxley. Huxley pointed out that all the various religions were, um, were the same, that they simply had different flavors. So in his book, you were able to taste all the various ones, and I found the taste of Zen Buddhism more to my liking than any other. The embodiment of Zen involves silencing the ego, that chattering voice in the back of your head. In that silence comes the ability to recognize the innate connection between all things, and furthermore, the lack of difference between all things. Right after World War II, and not, not many people remember, there was a tremendous interest in everything Japanese. Haiku flooded into America, uh, Japanese paintings became very popular, and he was part of a very broad interest in Japanese culture in the arts. Throughout the ages, the philosophy of Zen tends to be housed in the realm of storytelling. The koan. What's the sound of one hand clapping? The haiku. The old pond. A frog jumps in. Plop. John Cage was particularly fond of recounting anecdotes about his teacher, Daisetsu Suzuki. I was struck by a story about uh, Suzuki Daisetsu. He attended a conference of, of philosophers in Hawaii. And um, the first day after a lecture, when they all went out into the hall, Another philosopher asked Suzuki, 
what he thought of the lecture he had just heard. And Suzuki said, it was a very good lecture, but the important thing in Zen is life. And the next day there was another lecture, and the same philosopher asked him after that one what he thought of it, and he said it was also very good. But the important thing in Zen is death. And the philosopher was surprised and said, how can you say life one day and death the next? And Suzuki said, in Zen, there isn't much difference between the two. <laughs> he said it was Zen that saved him from needing psychoanalysis and helped him find some calm in his life. I think his personality went through a big change around 1950. He became kind of saintly and humorous and much calmer, and he was, a, he was an amazing figure after that. A Zen approach completely reshapes how one looks at 433. Gann writes in his book, The sensed phenomenon, no matter how small or ephemeral, is not trivial, because the meaning, or meaninglessness if you prefer, of all existence is encapsulated within it. Substitute for the plop of that frog any sound that one might hear during 4.33. The rain pattering on the roof of the Maverick Concert Hall, for instance. And the connection between Cage's silent piece and Zen starts to emerge. If you are able to appreciate, at least on an intellectual level, that from a Zen standpoint, there is no difference between playing a note and not playing a note. That a chord on the piano and a cough from an audience member behind you and the patter of the rain on the Maverick Concert Hall roof are not different, but the same thing. Then you may be able to think of 433 as something more profound than a joke, a hoax, or a deliberately provocative and nihilistic act of Dada. If you can turn toward the whir of the wind in the oak trees or the pulse of the ceiling fan, the same attention you are about to turn to the melodies of the pianist, you may have a few moments of realizing that the division you habitually maintain between art and life, between beautiful things and commonplace ones, is artificial. And that making it separates you off from life and deadens you to the magic around you. While Zen would continue to be an influence on Cage for the rest of his life, he never took up one of its fundamental practices, Sazen meditation. Instead of sitting cross-legged in reflection, Cage formulated music to quiet the mind. The ego has the capacity to cut itself off from the rest of mind or to flow with it. And it does that by uh, developing uh, likes and dislikes, taste and memory. And if you do, as Zen wants you to do, get uh, free of your tastes and memory and likes and dislikes, then you have to uh, dis discipline yourself. And uh, my discipline was that of the I Ching and shifting my responsibility from making choices to asking questions and getting the answers by means of um, the ancient 
coin-tossing method of the I Ching. The I Ching is an ancient divination method of Chinese descent. You pose a quandary to the I Ching, any sort of dilemma you'd request oracular guidance on. Three coins are tossed. Each heads is worth three, each tails is worth two. Add them up. The possible sums, six through nine, each correspond to a style of line, which you then draw. Repeat this process five more times, stacking the lines vertically going upwards. So you end up with a stack of six lines, a hexagram, this is called. There are 64 possible hexagrams. Each is accompanied by a text that you are then left to interpret to your situation. I think the philosophy of the I Ching is that everything that happens is part of a specific, unique moment and fits that moment. So if you consult the I Ching, it will give you a number and a reading that have to be right for that moment. It's just a, a faith in giving yourself up to randomness and maybe kind of a Rorschach test that reading that reading at your particular moment is going to be just the right thing for you. But whereas one might normally ask the I Ching for career, relationship, or spiritual advice, Cage went beyond asking for musical advice. Somehow he translated that into the idea that the I Ching would always give him just the right sound at the right moment. He arranged three charts, each with the 64 possible hexagrams. The first contained rhythmic patterns to determine duration, the second sonorities, and the third corresponded to dynamic markings. By this method, Cage painstakingly composed music of changes, a single phrase of music at a time. David Tudor debuted it in 1951. the notes and pieces like Music of Changes that were written with the I Ching are records of what I Ching numbers came up at that particular time. He used a similar technique to compose 433, but simply omitted the charts for pitch and dynamics, requiring only chance determination of the length. You won't believe this probably, but I wrote uh, 433 note by note, and all of the notes were silent, but they all had different lengths. And when I added them all up, they came to 433. (laughs) That same year, Cage's friend and collaborator, Robert Rauschenberg, lit his own fire in the art world. The white paintings are exactly what they sound like, a series of modular panels painted in all white. But despite claims of Emperor's New Clothes, prank, hoax, and stunt, the critical response has shifted dramatically over time. From the Museum of Modern Art's website, Rauschenberg's primary aim was to create a painting that looked untouched by human hands, as though it simply arrived in the world fully formed and absolutely pure. From the Guggenheim, Rauschenberg's uninflected all-white surfaces eliminated gesture and denied all possibility of narrative or external reference. Cage, as you can surmise, was enthralled. What could be freer from likes and dislikes? Again, Cage saw the rules of art changing and a pathway opening up before him. Cage would later say the push to finish 433 required not guts, but the example of Robert Rauschenberg. And in the introduction to his 1961 book, Silence, Cage makes sure the score is set straight. To whom it may concern, the white paintings came first, my silent piece came later. 
The culmination of all of this may have been enough, but there was one more stop on the path to 433. It was after I got to Boston that I went into the anechoic chamber at Harvard University. Anybody who knows me knows this story. I am constantly telling it. An anechoic chamber, as in echo-free, is a padded room specifically designed to absorb all sound reflections. They're usually in laboratories or universities, like the one Cage visited at Harvard, and used for designing technology or studying acoustics. Anyway, in that silent room, I heard two sounds, one high and one low. Afterward, I asked the engineer in charge why, if the room was so silent, I had heard two sounds. He said, describe them. I did. He said, the high one was your nervous system in operation. The low one was your blood in circulation. The way Cage tells the story, this was the moment that secured it for him. For the first time, he was sure there was no such thing as silence. I found out that silence, as the absence of sound, doesn't exist. Those two sounds are built in to the listener. I don't intend my blood to circulate. It just circulates. And I don't intend my nervous system to uh, be turned on. It just is. Therefore, silence is non-intention. Add to the list of definitions a work governed only by duration, a frame drawn to focus your attention, a blank canvas altered by the presence of the listener, a rejection of taste, a demonstration of the fact that silence is not silent, a display of non-intention, a respite from the noisy world, not of sound, but of one's own mind, a meditation. Cage was dismissed for 433 and a lot of other things he did by the real snooty classical critics at the large big city newspapers. But he was very warmly treated by critics all across the country and, and you know, non-music critics. I mean, just people who wrote about him. And they really get 433. It's not a hard piece to explain why he did it or what the experience of listening to it means. I think in the book I say it's his best understood piece and his least understood piece. While 433 eventually became an obligatory mention in the composer's byline, the piece was by no means famous overnight. For a decade after Cage wrote 433, I don't think it it got much traction at all. I don't think many people found out about it. He was... Still not very well known after he wrote it. He only mentions the piece twice in his book, Silence. Silence, a collection of Cage's lectures and essays from the last two decades, was published in 1961 through Wesleyan University Press. In large part, it's a manifesto of what Cage had come to believe about music. It was silence that made him famous in 1961. 
So I think the piece took a long time to get off the ground, and it really became famous because everybody read Cage's fantastic book. And the book made him financially successful and secured his career. And 433 became kind of the emblem of the book. I mean, the book is called Silence. They're very closely associated now. Cajun thought resonated particularly with the next generation of composers. Minimalism, music concrete, and acousmatic music. To works that crisscross pop in the avant-garde, like Laurie Anderson. I suppose that's what I like a lot about Cage. He's pretty funny. Makes me laugh. I trust that. John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And any piece whose intents are spelled out in a note from the composer, like Lamont Young's Compositions 1960, which consists of instructions like, the performer should prepare any composition and then perform it as well as he can. Cage himself conceived of two sequels. Zero, zero, zero. In a situation provided with maximum amplification, perform a disciplined action. And one cube. Build a sound system in the concert hall so that the whole thing is on the edge of feedback without actually feeding back. 433 has been performed by countless individuals. Symphonies, high school students, rock bands, techno artists. One of the most famous renditions by the BBC Symphony Orchestra was broadcast live over Radio 3. It's made its way into the pop sphere, too, recorded by the likes of Frank Zappa and the Magnetic Fields. It was even, somewhat flippantly, turned into a ringtone. Gann's book provides a detailed discography of 433. There are a lot of recordings of 433, and there are three ways to do it. One is just to have a blank section on your disc, nothing on there at all. What most people opt for is recording some natural environment, like that I heard a recording made at a, in a lush tropical forest in Japan with a brook running and everything. And some people, like Frank Zappa's recording, actually perform it and record themselves performing it, and you can tell they're there. And at the end of his recording, Frank Zappa gets up and walks away. <laughs> and so you're listening to it, and you're listening to nothing except maybe you hear a little bit of shuffling or anything. And then at the end, he said, oh, that's Frank Zappa walking away. <laughs> we'll take the Zappa option. I encourage you, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, to stop and take 273 seconds to just be quiet and listen. Afterwards, this music will click on. It was composed with chance methods and features my college professor, Francisco Albo, giving me feedback on my paper about John Cage. Stop watching three, two, one.
Ephemeral is written and assembled by Alexander and produced by Annie Reese, Matt Frederick, and Tristan McNeil, with additional mixing from Josh Thane and technical assistance from Sherry Larson. I cannot recommend Kyle Gann's work enough. No Such Thing as Silence is just one of many books and articles he has written. And his music is fantastic, too. Learn more about him at kylegann.com. And more on everything you heard here at ephemeral.show. I love this very much. I think this is the, the core of our... Uh, this is what defines coach. Because uh, the, the pilot says um, music is not about something. It's not about the expression of the composer. Right. Music is in the environment. And we have to either absorb it or accept it or not. But it is not a record for our for expressing our feelings or Next time on the season finale of Ephemeral. In cleaning out a closet, we found some old dicta belts. I've tried to rig up a machine to see if we could pick up some of it. This is an odd tape. This is a historical recording. Problem is, 31 years of magnetic degradation, I have no idea what it's going to look like. The images were jumping. The sound got warped. I don't know whether it's her or not, but it sure seems like a coincidence. She was afraid she would forget what it sounded like. Forty years, 41 years later, can't understand why I recorded so much of it. Disbelief that anyone ever would be interested in listening to this. How nice it is for us to be in here playing with this machine. Like years of recording over the same tape. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's any audio, really. So I don't think there's much. Visit us on the World Wide Web and interact with us on social media at the Femoral Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.